Welcome to Question Period on this Sunday, March 12th. I'm Vashi Capellos. Today, the Prime Minister's mea culpa on foreign meddling, sort of. To be quite honest, I know that no matter what I say, Canadians continue to have questions about what we did and what we didn't. The feds respond to growing questions by appointing a special rapporteur to investigate and by launching consultations on a foreign agent registry. But is it enough to quell concerns as the opposition pounds the pavement calling for a public inquiry? International Trade Minister Mary Ng on that is next and we'll ask her. Then, calling out online hate. We do end up with thick skin at some point in our lives, but it's not acceptable. Governor General Mary Simon is sounding an alarm on online abuse she faces on social media. Our sit down with the Governor General is just ahead. Plus, juries out. We have made real progress on a plan to continue strengthening Canada's bail system. Provinces get what they want. The feds say they'll reform bail laws to try and prevent violent offenders from reoffending. But is there enough evidence that will work? Justice ministers from British Columbia and Manitoba will both be here and I'll ask them. Let's start with the federal government's evolving response to foreign election interference attempts. After weeks of mounting political and public pressure and allegations they didn't act when they were warned China tried to interfere in the last two general elections, the feds are taking the long-awaited step of launching consultations to set up a foreign agent registry. International Trade Minister Mary Ng is with us now from the UK. Hi, Minister. Good to see you. It's terrific to see you, Vashi. I appreciate you making the time from overseas. Uh, over the past few weeks, uh, I did ask your colleague, Minister Mendocino, probably no fewer than eight times when these consultations would start and how long they'd take, and he didn't have a single answer for me. If your government was as dedicated or is as dedicated to rooting out foreign interference as you and your colleagues say it is, wouldn't you have started these consultations a long time ago? Well, I think the important thing is that they've started. Um, we launched it yesterday. The website is open and there's 60 days. So uh, in the next 60 days, we hope that we'll hear from a lot of Canadians uh, to give us the input that is necessary on uh, on their issues with respect to uh, the creation of a registry. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, that feedback from Canadians, from stakeholders and from those who uh, wish to uh, give the government feedback about the registry. And, and I do want to ask you some specifics about the registry, but, but again, with respect, I, I, I do want to ask you once more why it took so long. I mean, I remember the minister first mentioning at the outset of December that these consultations were, were something that he and his ministry were considering. You know, it, it, can you see how Canadians would see, oh, it's three months later and now in the middle of a controversy, all of a sudden they're starting? Well, I think that uh, what I would say to Canadians is that I understand where Canadians are coming from. They want to feel um, reassurance that uh, the institutions f uh, that are there for them uh, is working. And uh, the registry is one part of a range of, uh, a range of uh, initiatives that we are doing and that we've always been doing. Is there a world in which at the end of those consultations your government's government rather decides against pursuing a registry? Well, I mean, the Minister Menachino has lead for this file, so I certainly, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't want to speak for my ministerial colleagues, but the point of the registry is to um, listen to Canadians on how best to, um, to put this registry forward. It could include legislation. And, um, you know, what I said yesterday um, with Minister Menachino when we launched the uh, registry was that I think it's really important to listen to a range of voices from Canadians. As a Chinese-Canadian, as a Chinese 
MP and cabinet minister. I think it's important that many voices are listened to. I know that I care deeply for my country, deeply about democracy, deeply about uh, the functioning of our democratic institutions. I know that many Chinese Canadians do, but I also do hear from them. I hear mm -hmm. concerns from them about about a caste uh, being, uh, you know, being over a community on things that we do, uh, that that we do, and that we cherish in doing because we fought so hard to do that. And I certainly take the point that it comes from many places, um, and and certainly the last thing any of us should be trying to do is further, uh, uh, you know, further, uh, you know, f further any kind of hate going towards the Chinese community uh, in this country. And I, and I appreciate you making those points. But the focus is not, over the past three weeks, on alleged interference from other countries. And where the registry is concerned, does that mean, for example, that your government is considering not specifically naming China in, the, uh, you know, uh, encompassing the, the types of foreign operatives who have to register? And, and I ask you that question because I spoke to the Prime Minister, uh, the former Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, who brought that law in 2018 to Australia. They did not specifically name China at the time. He said it was a colossal mistake and hasn't actually done anything as a result to root out Chinese foreign interference. I think the point to this uh, that we are pursuing in the registry is to make sure that there is greater transparency and that there is another tool to protect Canadians against foreign interference. That's what this is. This is in addition to the work that we did in 2017, in 2019, which, uh, which uh, a law of parliament that created ENSICOP, the parliamentarian committee that has top secret clearance, both members of parliament, but as well as senators who have that top secret clearance in order to review all of the, uh, all of the materials that would come from uh, national security agencies. In 2019, we stood up a sure. independent group of, uh, you know, and, and you've heard this, right? I mean, and, of, and we've made uh, of, the point, of those and, and I who... pardon the interruption, Minister, and we've, uh, you know, we have mm -hmm. at length, uh, you know, I, in no way am I inferring here or insinuating that your government has not done a lot around foreign interference. But the mm -hmm. point that Canadians have made over the last three weeks in light of these new allegations is that they want you to do more, right? So, so even on the basic question of whether or not this, this foreign registry will proceed, regardless of the determination of how, you didn't provide a specific answer. Is it a question of how, not if? I think it's very much a question of how. It's about getting it right. Okay, Minister, uh, just before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about a different subject. It's been three months exactly since the Ethics Commissioner found you violated the Conflict of Interest Act, and we haven't spoken since. You were found to be in contravention of that act because your office awarded two contracts worth $22,000 to your friend's company. How did you not realize steering that process was a conflict of interest? I failed to recuse myself from um, any dealings that, uh, that ultimately led to the awarding of that contract. And for that, I regret. And it was a mistake. And I apologize for that. Canadians expect me to continue to keep working hard. I've committed to continuing to do that. But I would say that with respect to the contract, I said this to the ethics commissioner, uh, to the uh, ethics committee when I appeared. The awarding of the contract met the Treasury Board guidelines. The services were provided and they met the Treasury Board guidelines. What I failed to do was to recuse. For that, I apologize. For that, it was a mistake. And uh, what I would say to Canadians is I will continue to work hard um, in my capacity. Um, and uh, and that's, uh, right. that's the only way I know how to, uh, you know, to keep doing this work uh, for Canadians in service of Canadians. I understand that it met the procurement rules, but it obviously did not meet the ethics law. Why was ethics not a bigger consideration for you? 
It is a consideration, and uh, and on reflection today, we have training that is there for uh, my staff and another set of training for myself. It is, but respectfully, uh, it is Minister, sure do you under, necessary do you need training? Respectfully, do you need training to know not to give your friend a contract? It was a mistake. I acknowledge that. Did you ever consider resigning? I've said that um, in making this mistake, I need to work very, very hard to earn uh, the trust of, uh, of, of, uh, of those to whom I serve uh, in my riding, but indeed across Canada. Um, but, uh, but no, I will keep working hard for Canadians. Did you ever consider paying any of the money back since it is taxpayer money? As I said uh, to uh, the commissioner, uh, rather, sorry, to the committee, um, the contracts were awarded. They met Treasury Board guidelines. Service was rendered. And let me just explain what that service was. At the time, at the height of the pandemic, when it was critical for small businesses to know about the supports that were needed, I stand behind everything that I have done in service of small businesses at a time when they needed it the most, understanding that lending was available through the small business loan, understanding that they could get access to a wage subsidy that helped keep employees on the payroll, understanding that uh, rent supports and the other range of supports that small businesses needed at the time when they needed it the most. It was at that point that I needed uh, to make sure that I was communicating and to communicate clearly to Canadians and to those businesses about what the federal government was doing to help them. And today we have just under a million businesses that have taken advantage of those loans and that got through the pandemic because of this programming. And, and certainly, Minister, I'm not taking away from the objectives of those programs or your need to communicate that to small businesses. I remember interviewing you during that period on this very subject countless times in order to help the government do that, right? To help people who were suffering. But that's not the, the issue I'm asking you about, right? And I think the reason that the opposition has put to you whether or not you would consider paying that money back is because it's taxpayer money that the ethics commissioner ultimately found was you know, a fault through a faulty process, through an ethically compromised process, was directed towards a friend of yours. And 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 just to be clear, you're saying you have not and you will not consider paying that money back. That's true. Yes. And that's just because it complies with the procurement rules. There were services that were provided uh, for Canadians uh, in that work, and uh, the contract was awarded and it met the procurement rules. And as I said, Vashi. Um, and I've said this uh, and I will continue to say it, uh, I apologize for um, my lack of recusal. That will not happen again. And I commit uh, to working very hard for Canadians and for my constituents. Minister, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Safe travels. Okay, thanks so much, Vashi. Coming up, speaking out against online hate, Governor General Mary Simon is the first Indigenous person to hold the role, and it's come with a personal price tag. The Governor General joins me next to explain why she's calling out online hate. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Question Period on this Sunday. Social media is full of hate. Anyone who has a Twitter account knows that. But for some, it can be worse than others. And now, Governor General Mary Simon has decided she's having none of it. Simon released this video to mark International Women's Day and shine a light on just some of the racist, misogynistic and hateful comments directed at her. Here's a sample. It's a long way from the reservation, so she's making the best of it, one person writes. You should resign now, treasonous B-word. Look at her face, full of pure gluttony is another. 
Last month, the governor general decided to close her social media post to comments in response. Simon was appointed to the role in 2021 and is the first Indigenous person to hold the position. Have a listen to our conversation. Hi, Governor General. Good to see you. Thank you for making the time for this. Good morning. You've spoken about how you respectfully disagree with the idea that women should just learn to grow a thick skin or, or take a joke. I'm wondering, did the comments you posted about bother you? Of course they bother me. Um, I think that the fact that, I mean, we, we do end up with thick skin at some point in our lives, but it's not acceptable. I think this kind of uh, dialogue that's happening on social media, not just uh, in terms of my uh, role, but also many m women and girls are being affected by social media uh, discussions that are very negative and racist and there's misogyny involved. Uh, so uh, these are things that I think when they happen to me as an individual, I take this opportunity as a way to bring the conversation out into the open because I think we really need to have this larger dialogue on what's happening on social media against individuals like girls and, and, and women. Uh, you know, in, in terms of, we've talked a lot about indigenous women and girls. Uh, it, it's predominantly targeted uh, at that, but it's also, it, it targets other women and girls. And uh, even other people, men, uh, it's something that's happening and it's, it seems to be growing. Uh, we need to tackle it uh, globally. I think some people would get those comments and uh, kind of, you know, want to back away, want to be less visible or not uh, flag them, not make those comments kind of more public. You, you wanted to call it out, though. Is there a point at which you kind of realize this, this isn't something I want to be quiet about? I do want to be very vocal about this? Uh, yes, for sure. Um, it's, it's, it's a reflection of what I've been like throughout my career because I've had to call people out on uh, uh, situations that weren't acceptable to me. But it seemed to be easier then when I was younger where you could face somebody and be able to talk to them about what, what was going on. Um, on social media, because these people are, are not visible, <laughs> it's more difficult to, to, to uh, have this discussion. Um, for me, it's really important to use an opportunity like this. I call it an opportunity because um, even though it was hurtful and I, I, it was challenging, I, I saw it in, in a way where I could actually use this situation to, to bring the issue out into the open so that we could have this discussion. And it was on International Women's Day where I was gathering uh, a lot of women from around the world that are posted in Ottawa as ambassadors and other uh, leaders and other individuals that have been impacted. And we were able to talk about this issue in a way where we could express our lived experiences and then move to another level as to how we can tackle these types of issues. And uh, it was a very, very constructive discussion. I wanted to ask you about that and, and the way to navigate it. And first from kind of a micro level and then from a macro level. Um, from a micro perspective, I mean, I'm in nowhere near the same shoes as you. You hold an incredible position of authority. You're an Indigenous woman. Um, I'm like an F-list public figure, you know, but I got a lot of it as well. And I just removed myself completely. I just left Twitter a few years ago. And for me, that has made a big difference. Did you ever consider doing that? Or did you feel like 
you still had a responsibility to remain on the platform even though you were getting that hate. Yes, I, I certainly did consider it and um, there was a point when the um, online messages became personal and that's when I decided that, um, that I shouldn't be silent about it, that I would take this um, situation that I found myself in as an individual, as a woman, as an Indigenous woman, uh, to bring it out into the open so that we could talk about it. Because um, I think, like you, it's a natural reaction to just say, I'm not going to deal with this and pull back from it. And uh, most people do it like that. And, and I could have done that, but I thought about it. And I thought about some of the situations I've confronted in my career. And I said, no, I shouldn't just leave it alone. So I decided to, do, to use it and, and, to, and to invite women to talk to me about it. And it was a very, very good conversation. Beyond the conversation is another one occurring about, is there a role for government? Is there, what is the role of the platforms? Are they, can we actually trust them to implement that kind of stuff? I know they're all doing some things about it, but still it's very pervasive. From the perspective of uh, that, that issue around government, the, the tricky part is that it's, it sparks a debate around free speech versus um, you know, versus trying to limit hate. Do you think any government, a government, can successfully navigate it? Do you think a policy could navigate the, the concerns around free speech? I think it's part of the process. I think that it takes different partners to, to, to deal with this. I, on, on the one hand, have the ability to convene people and to discuss these issues. So I'm doing that and we're going to talk about what kind of toolkit we need for women to, to address these issues individually and um, it, re it requires different partners. It, it could require the government if there's, if there's any uh, work being done in this area then of course that dialogue should be happening in, in the House of Commons but also it requires other partners, uh, uh, you know, social media people. That, that control these sites and we're not, we need to create a conversation that will uh, allow us to grow the conversation so that we can in fact go to different partners to talk to them about it. I think it's, it, it requires, um, it's a long, it's, a, it's not an immediate thing that's going to happen. It's more of a longer term um, thing, uh, uh, process that that we have to engage in and it, it, it will engage hopefully not just women and girls but men as well because they are also targeted in, in many ways uh, not nearly like women and, and girls are but they're still it's a, it's a people's issue it's not a woman's issue it's not a girl's issue it's a it's a human issue and I think we all have a role to play to talk to our families to our children to make sure they understand what the, um, the pitfalls are in terms of being part of these social media platforms and also to educate our young people to understand why they have to be much more careful than they are. Governor General, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time today. Okay, thank you.
When we come back, they got what they wanted. Provincial justice ministers asking for bail reform, get what they want from the federal government, but will it work? We're back in a moment with two of them. You'd be hard-pressed to open a paper in any of Canada's bigger cities over the last few months and not read about a horrific random crime. Provincial premiers have been united in their ask for the feds to do something about it. That's something. Provinces want Ottawa to create a reverse onus at bail hearings for people facing certain charges related to firearms possession. That means that someone trying to get bail would have to show why they believe they should be released, as opposed to the Crown having to prove why they should be detained. Late last week, the feds responded to that ask. We have a broad consensus on a path forward, one based on a set of shared principles and clear objectives. That starts with a commitment from our government, the federal government, to move forward quickly on targeted reforms to the criminal code on the law of bail. Nikki Sharma is the Attorney General of British Columbia and Calvin Gertson is the Attorney General of Manitoba. Hello, ministers. Good to see you both today. Uh, Minister Sharma, I'll start with you. I'm hoping you can outline for Canadians, before we get into what happened in that meeting, exactly how you see the problem you're hoping the federal government will address. What is the issue you're trying to solve in British Columbia? Sure, yeah, thanks for having us. Um, really, I think communities across the country, including in BC, have seen a rise in um, random attacks and violence. Um, and it's because of some changes to the bail policy that recently happened that I think had some unintended consequences. So leaders from across the country were here today to, to call upon the federal government to do some bail reform um, so we could make our, our, our community safer. Are you specifically, uh, Minister, seeing a spike in crime committed by repeat offenders in Manitoba? Yes, and what we're seeing is an individual who has a known history of violence uh, then committing uh, crime, getting out on bail, uh, and then committing another crime. And you can imagine the, the, the victim or the family of that victim, uh, how victimized they feel when they find out that the individual who's accused of that crime uh, has a long history and was out on bail. They feel it could have been prevented. And so we brought that message as attorney generals to the federal attorney general uh, last year in October and said there needs to be change. We need to have a meeting that actually brings about change. And today was that meeting. Let's talk about what was decided because I heard the federal minister, uh, Minister Sharma, say that he is committed now to reforms to amendments to the criminal code that will address the issue of bail reform. He spoke about it in a very general way. What kind of specifics do you in interpret attached to that? Are there any? Yeah, we had really detailed discussions today and, and we, we all came, I think, as leaders across the problem with an alignment around repeat violent offenders, as, as my colleague talked about. What we heard from the federal government today, what, what we came from the meetings was a clear commitment for legislative changes to the criminal code that would add um, stronger provisions on repeat violent offenders and some firearm offenses. So we know that um, with those changes that people that commit those offenses um, have an onus of, of being held unless there's a good reason to release them. It's a reverse onus, right? Mm -hmm. And that already exists, Minister Gertzen, right? The, it, it, for violent crimes. And this is, is this basically extending what would fall under that uh, purview? 
Well, it exists for certain um, categories of crime, so often involving, for example, a gun. Um, but we have situations in Manitoba, is an example, where uh, bear spray is used significantly. And that might not seem normal in, in some cities, but and we don't have a lot of bears in Winnipeg, but people are buying bear spray and attacking people with it, or with knives. We have more people who die as a result of uh, a violent incident with a knife than we do with a gun. But those didn't apply any sort of stronger penalty like a reverse onus. And I think that today's measures uh, will address some of that. So what I'm pleased about is that it's specific measures, but they're also flexible enough to meet the individual challenges in individual cities. Because we're all dealing with violent crime, but it doesn't all look exactly the same way. There is a presumption um, in our society of innocence before guilt. And, and the, re the idea of reverse onus, um, you know, part of it is baked in already, as we've been discussing, but extending it, even providing for that flexibility may, might make some people nervous. I, I wonder what you say to people who wonder if this is heading down mm -hmm. a, a very slippery slope. Yeah, that's a really important question, and I want to make it clear that uh, certainly from our perspective, and I think all of the people that showed up today, it's not about reversing that or changing the very, very fundamentals of our justice system in terms of innocent until proven guilty. It's about circling around repeat violent offenders that we know are causing harm, but in BC we also have a Safer Communities Action Plan, which is bigger than just this piece of the puzzle. It's about providing the supports that community communities need to break the cycle of violence and whether it's mental health supports or addiction supports and very very importantly we have a very important I think we all share this principle is that we all need to make sure we we're continuing the work and that this is not impacted about lessening the um, impacts of the criminal justice system on indigenous people across this country and that's a big part of the work we're doing in well, BC. well I, and I do think that's important to highlight Minister Gertz because the bill c75 which which we're, we're all talking about here the one with those unintended consequences was originally intended to address that very issue, the over-representation of minorities in, in the prison system. What do you say to people who are worried these kinds of changes are also going to reverse the positive impact that some of BLC 75 might have had on those communities? Well, I'd say a couple of things. One is remember what a reverse onus is. It's not saying you can't get bail. It's not saying you can't apply for bail. It does put a little higher bar, though, that says you need to demonstrate, if you've already proven to be a violent offender in the past, why you'd be safe in the community, why the community would be safe if you're released. Also, like a lot of different sort of offenses we hear about, it's, it's a relatively small number of people in the overall system who are committing repeat violent crimes. And so we're not talking about everybody who's accused of a violent crime. We're talking about repeat offenders, which is a narrower band. So I do understand the concerns. We still ultimately, as ministers of justice, do have a responsibility to ensure that people are safe in the community. And, and I think, you know, it's incumbent on me to acknowledge, like, that, that feeling is really real, right? Like, a lot of people have been reading headlines across this country. They feel nervous. They've seen, you know, a police officer die. And, and I don't want to take away from any of that. But again, circling back to this concept of innocent before, uh, you know, uh, proven guilty and I take your point that this isn't exactly you know this is about what gets you bail but just because you have offended once and I'm not defending the violent offender but 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 it's true that just because you've offended once Minister Sharma does not mean you're guilty of another crime yeah and that's why it's so important that our plans are comprehensive in the province like ours the safer communities action plan is not about just focusing on this issue it's about focusing on the broader supports and one thing that I want also um, to bring from our experience in BC is that oftentimes the random acts of violence are against vulnerable people for like 
um, uh, Chinese seniors in, in Chinatown or women walking down the street. So we're talking about the balance that we need to have in our justice systems of protecting the most vulnerable, making sure that if, if it's a repeat violent offender that causes harm to communities, we have more tools in the toolbox to make sure our communities are safe. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Ministers, thanks very much for making time for this conversation. Okay. Thanks Thank for having you. us. After the break, another week and more questions for the Prime Minister on foreign elections interference. His answer has finally changed, but is it enough to assuage critics? The Sunday strategy session is up next with Kathleen Moncori tonight and Scott Reed. Don't go away. Despite announcing the search for a special rapporteur to investigate foreign interference allegations, the Prime Minister remains on the defence as he continues to field questions about what he knew and when he knew it. To be quite honest, I know that no matter what I say, Canadians continue to have questions about what we did and what we didn't. And that is why an independent special rapporteur is going to be able to look at the entire landscape and dig deeply into everything. Why do we need a special rapporteur? What does this rapporteur even do? It sounds like a fake job. It isn't just a rapporteur. The feds also launched consultations on the long-awaited foreign agent registry, though it's still unclear when it could be implemented or if it will be at all. As Parliament heads into a week-long reprieve for March break, will the Prime Minister's new announcements get him a break from mounting political pressure? Our Sunday strategy session is here. Kathleen Monk is a former NDP strategist and director of communications to the late Jack Layton. Corey Tanike was Ontario Premier Doug Ford's campaign manager and former director of communications for Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And Scott Reed is a CTV News political analyst and former communications director to Prime Minister Paul Martin. Hello, everyone. Good, good to see you as always. Corey, I'll, I'll start with you. We have been talking about this issue for a while, but this past week uh, gave us some new developments in that the federal government decided that even though it had said for a while its response was adequate, it now recognizes that there needs to be a bigger response because uh, Canadians' concerns uh, were not allayed by what they had been talking about so far. Did what they announced this week do enough, do you think, to uh, you know, deflate some of the focus on them for this? Well, big shocker, Fashi. Uh, the government listened to everything that Scott said last week, and not a single <laughs> thing that I said. Uh, uh, look, uh, uh, I'm not sure. Time will tell. Uh, you know, I, I, I'll still go back to what I said last week, which I think the more important thing is what are they going to do about it in a forward-looking manner? Uh, it's not about what's in the rearview mirror as much as what's coming ahead. And I always think that's what campaigns and elections and issues are always about. It's about the forward-looking uh, aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So what is the government going to do to have consequence for China on these issues. Uh, you know, we can look backward as much as we want, inquiries, uh, you know, uh, in various forms. But uh, what do we do next? What, what, what's the so what on all of this? It's interesting, Kathleen, because Corey's comments echo Fred Delory, who I spoke with the past few weeks, mm -hmm. who's come on, and he was the manager of the 2021 Conservative campaign, right. the one at the heart of all of these allegations. And he's kind of saying the same thing. He's like, I don't think a public inquiry is going to do us much good. Let's look forward. The, the, the problem is that his comments do not echo 
conservatives in the House of Commons right now, nor the NDP, even all of whom are saying there needs to be a public airing of all of this. Yeah, and that's why I think the Liberal government has so dramatically changed. There's been a sea change in their approach to the issue. You know, they're they're rolling out new measures and new actions, it seems, every day. We're not getting that information in question period because the question period and the theatrics of it and the time limits on answers are so short that, frankly, you can't answer a nuanced kind of security question in, in that forum. That's why we're hearing more elsewhere, committee or in these press conferences and announcements. But I think what we're seeing really is a divide in tone, where we're seeing the Conservatives kind of pound away at the Liberals and these thunderous questions. And, and the Liberals taking a much more serious, calm, long-term approach. Because I think they're asking themselves the long game. And they're asking themselves, in the back rooms, how is this translating on the ground in writings that are dominated by Chinese Canadians? And how will that play out? I think that's a really important point, actually, even when you consider the strategy the Conservatives are employing, Scott, um, other than a few exceptions where Pierre Polyev went pretty far. Last week, you could see him try to rein it back. And, and we know that from the review of the last election, they their posture towards China was interpreted by many Chinese Canadians it, in a way that made them view the Conservatives negatively. Not, not to say that um, their posture was wrong at all, but, but that it, there was a conception, this is what their own review showed, uh, kind of a negative perception of them. Uh, do you see that as an important issue for the way in which the Conservatives decide to, to keep this issue at the forefront? I certainly do. And look, if you saw Pierre Polyev reining it back last week, I guess there must be two of them, because I sure as hell didn't see that. In question period. It. Like, he, uh, said he went really far, and then in question period the next day, he was much more like a Tom care. Well, maybe. I, I mean, I think they've got to be very careful. And it isn't just about electoral uh, considerations in 20 ridings where you have a concentration of... Um, you know, Chinese Canadian voters. I think, frankly, we got to be careful about thinking about it purely through that lens or even through that lens is not as though that community is monolithic in its opinion and its views and its voting patterns. But I, I think they've got to be careful for another reason. I mean, you've got Pierre Polyev on the verge of alleging that the prime minister is acting in a treasonous fashion if he fails to do anything short of call a public inquiry. You've got Michael Cooper, MP at committee, acting like he's Andrew Dice Clay. I think they've got to rein in their tone in a substantive, consistent, and really clear fashion because you, know, you start to put at risk the appearance that, yes, the prime minister took too long to get to the right place, but now the Conservatives are starting to look like they are playing even more partisan games with an issue that I think if people are paying attention to, they expect it to be treated seriously. Corey, I want to get your take. I just want to take on that. I just want to point out, I, I certainly didn't mean to insinuate that there's a monolithic voter base there at all. That's specifically what the coming review into the federal Conservatives' uh, last election performance from their own party stated about, about those concerns. Uh, on the point that Scott's making, though, about the, you know, the, the way in which the opposition has to kind of uh, not, basically not go too far, because this seems like a, a slam dunk for them in the first place. And then to insinuate this week that um, you know, the, the prime minister was essentially being treasonous, does that feel like a step too far to you? Well, it does, because I don't think the election is going to be about this. I think the election, uh, you know, and what's best for the Conservatives is to be back on an economic narrative about inflation, about cost of living, about all those things. Like, at the end of the day, that's what most Canadians uh, will end up voting on, I think. And if they do, that's to the benefit of Pierre Polyev. 
But like, let, let's talk about how non-monolithic the Chinese-Canadian population is. Roughly half of the Chinese-Canadians are Cantonese speakers who mostly come from Hong Kong and who really don't have any truck or trade uh, with the regime in Beijing. So, you know, it's not, it's not a monolithic uh, sort of uh, electoral group, although it's, I think, a very important one within, uh, you know, uh, the, the ethnic communities of the GTA and, and uh, the greater Vancouver area. But ultimately, I think the election is going to be about the economy. And at some point, they're going to have to transition back to that because I think that's really the main game. And there was some polling this week, Kathleen, that, that exemplified that, right? That underscored that people still care about health care, people still care about the economy. They do have concerns about some of the stuff they've been reading, and they want an airing of it to some degree, but it's not the top issue for them at this Yeah, point. there's a higher awareness of this issue mm -hmm. of Chinese interference, but not necessarily engagement. But what was interesting, when you drilled down into the partisan numbers, actually one out of four Conservatives actually thought that there was Chinese interference in the 2021 election, and if there wasn't that interference, the outcome of the election would have been different. And that's pretty significant. Um, I agree with my colleagues that, you know, that Pierre has been walking an interesting line on China. But, but it's interesting when you look historically at the Conservatives, they've always rode this like roller coaster when it comes to their approach to China. Harper started in opposition as a hawk on China and then moved into government originally as a hawk on China. And then slowly into 20, 2011, actually moved more into a pragmatic approach, less on human rights and values and more on an economic approach and actually became Came more warm and signed that you know dangerous you know FIPA deal with China at the time. So we're seeing kind of an evolution where actually post Harper days we we saw the return to a more conservative hawkish stance. And I think it's because it's easier when you're in opposition to be that hawk, to be that hard pounding you know thunderous questioner on on China. And when frankly when parties are in government they have moved to more an economic stance. And and so. You know, who is the hawk right now in the Liberal cabinet against China? We don't know, you know, and frankly, on the, the, the converse of that is who's the dove in the Conservatives, right? We don't know who those, who those, who play those parts. I think the perception, Scott, and last word to you on this, is that there isn't perhaps a hawk in, in, in Liberal cabinet on China. Yeah, it's very challenging. And, you know, when you look at the fact that we had the two Michaels to deal with, which really handcuffed our ability to be tough on China, we were navigating a completely treacherous diplomatic circumstance. I think that, our, you know, the, the liberals would argue, look, we put in place a bunch of measures, but, you know, fundamentally, it took so long to get to the right place that a lot of what they, you know, been saying this past number of days has been dripped in cynicism and received with cynicism. And we'll see next week, you know, to Corey's point about moving forward, we've got a break week. Will the prime minister be able to move this along? Will he be able to turn the page and talk about the economy and focus on that in a way that's beneficial? You know, we'll see that. It feels like this thing's gonna dog at him for a little while longer. Okay, I'm gonna leave it there. Thanks everyone, appreciate the discussion as always. Corey tonight, Scott Reed and Kathleen Monk. Coming up, you heard us talk about March break. Well, it'll be over with a bang. First up, U.S. President Joe Biden's visit. We now have a date. And right after, the federal budget will be tabled. The Scrum with Joyce Napier, Marika Walsh, and Rob Benzie will be here next to tell us what to watch for. Stay right there. Well, we finally have a date for when U.S. President Joe Biden will make his first state visit to Canada, and it's happening later this month. Biden will be here in the nation's capital on March 23rd and 24th, and his visit will include an address to Parliament. As for what's on the agenda, there's still a lot of worry, of course, over Biden's Buy America rhetoric and the impact of his Inflation Reduction Act, which could trigger more investment south of the border. 
The feds also want to renegotiate the safe third country agreement to fix major issues at Roxham Road. That's the border crossing in Quebec. Keep your pen handy and circle the calendar, though, for a few days after Biden's visit, March 28th. That's when the finance minister is set to unveil the federal budget. The Scrum is here to help us look ahead to these big dates. Joyce Napier is the CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Marika Walsh is a senior political reporter for the Globe and Mail. And Robert Benzie is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Hi, everybody. Nice to see you today. Um, Marika, I'll start with you. Let's start with the budget. It's a big one. The federal government has telegraphed that it will be more fiscally restrained or it will be in an environment of fiscal restraint. What do you read into that? I don't know why everyone's laughing when I said that. Yeah. Hey, wait a second. I think that kind of shows, right? I mean, what does fiscal restraint mean for this government compared to maybe past governments? I think that's still an open question because they also viewed the last budget as fiscally restrained while adding tens of billions to the bottom line. So I think it's a really important budget for the feds because they will be responding to President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. It's all of those measures to incent companies to invest in the U.S. Uh, rather than other jurisdictions, and that comes at the detriment of Canada. And so how Canada decides to respond to that, how much money they're willing to put on the table in the climate of fiscal restraint is something that I think will be really important to watch. Or do they try and find other ways of targeting it through labor incentives or something else. Uh, look, I think Marika lays it out, Joyce, yeah. very well. I think that's the truth. Basically, look, they do, uh, they are operating in an environment of restraint because they have to, because if they throw too much money out there, it will add to inflation. And that is, the, you know, they know that that's a bad thing for Canadians. At the same time, they cannot pinch pennies when it comes to responding to the IRA south of the border. It's a massive amount of money that Biden's injecting into the economy there, and they have to come to the table with something. Well, definitely, they have to come to the table. Look, it's, it's the greening of America. It's $370 billion. I mean, clearly, we can't compete against that. Canada does not have the means, does not have the population to compete against that. But how do you kind of squeeze your companies into that? How do you get a piece of the action? Or with, will everything go south of the border? And you know, I think that's a big fear this government has right now. Um, you know, the visit, the, the, the president's visit is, it's, you know, we, we can't be only asking. We can't be asking, hey, can we get a little, can we squeeze into your IRA? I mean, maybe there's something in it for us. We have got to offer something in return. So the question is, what can Canada offer the United States? Uh, would it be critical minerals? Can we mine those fast enough? Mm -hmm. And we know that that is also a very complicated process here. Right. Yeah, and I, I do think the IRA is sort of unique um, in the Inflation Reduction Act, Rob, in the pressure it puts on the government to walk that fine line, because it isn't. I mean, they have healthcare expenditures which are big. There are other things they have to spend money on, but the amount of money, as Joyce outlined, that they are essentially trying to compete with in order to not see invest, investment bleed out of this country. It's not. There's no. There's no way they can just throw a couple hundred million at it and expect that to do the job. And I think that makes that tightrope walk even harder for the finance minister. Yeah, Joyce is right. And I think um, the timing of the president's visit is actually not unhelpful. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I, I mean, we've seen Canada get exemptions on some Buy American provisions in the past. So I think that there's probably that hope that, uh, that we can get some, uh, some reprieve from this. But yeah, we cannot compete with uh, a, a U.S. federal government and a U.S. president who has an election next year. So we have we have a lot of challenges. The other, the other challenge for Chrystia Freeland, of course, is 
the domestic political challenges here, Vashi. Uh, mm-hmm. How precarious is this liberal government? We don't really know. Uh, they, if they spend too little, the, does Jagmeet Singh then turn around and say, you know what, this is not the kind of government that we can continue to support uh, in this confidence and supply agreement. So it really is a very, very delicate balancing act that uh, Ms. Freeland has uh, you know, ahead of her. Uh, just quickly, I want to get you all to weigh in, if you could, on the Biden visit and the significance of it. What specifically are you going to watch for, Marika? You know, I think it's always a big deal when the U.S. president comes to visit. And what I'm looking for is how much the liberals can use it to change the agenda. They've had a rough start to this year. Mm-hmm. It's now we're now approaching April and they have yet to have really many significant wins other than health. And so how much this changes the conversation, how much they can get a few wins, I think is something that I'm looking forward to. Joyce? Well, I'm looking at how they are going to co- uh, co- uh, counter the Inflation Reduction Act. That's one thing. What can Canada offer? Because, you know, being the, the asking partner is not always, doesn't put you in a winning position. So what is Canada prepared to offer Joe Biden? Um, because he's obviously spending two days here. In, in the world of the, of the White House, that's a very, very long mm-hmm. time. That's a significant amount of time. Uh, what will be the win at the end of those two days? Because neither one can afford a two-day visit where there is no real tangible win. Yeah, there's no way. I'd, I'd be shocked, Rob, if there's, you know, the end of that 48 hours comes and, and there's nothing nothing out there. They're, I think they're right in the press release as we speak, probably. I doubt <laughs> these meetings usually don't happen without an outcome predetermined. Yeah, and Vashi, we know that they're going to be talking about Ukraine and they're going to be talking about Haiti. So on the uh, international relations front, those kinds of things uh, resonate with Canadians. But I think it's not insignificant that uh, First Lady Jill Biden, uh, Dr. Jill Biden, is with uh, her husband, the president, uh, for this visit, because that means there's going to be lots of pictures. And mm-hmm. and those kinds of pictures are going to be very helpful for Justin Trudeau. Uh, uh, Canadians have this weird uh, love for uh, Democratic presidents, uh, <laughs> whether it's Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or Joe Biden. And I think that that's not going to be unhelpful to Mr. Trudeau, who has his own domestic political challenges. So those pictures on the front page of the newspapers and on the TV newscasts are going to be uh, helpful. Yeah, and least of all, Ottawa is going to be exciting in March. This never happens, guys. I'm going to leave it there. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. Rob Benzie, Joyce Napier, and Marika Walsh. Thanks, everyone. And just before we go today, three things I'm watching for this week. First up on that visit from U.S. President Joe Biden. Who's he bringing with him from his cabinet? Which secretaries come will certainly tell us a lot about what Biden's priorities are heading into that visit. Then I'm also looking at the foreign interference allegations file, specifically the committee that's meeting on Parliament Hill. The Conservatives on that committee really want to call the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff. Will they be successful in that endeavour? And will the Prime Minister name that special rapporteur position? He says it's going to be an eminent Canadian, but he hasn't specifically ironed out exactly who it is. I'll look to see if that decision is made next week. And then finally, uh, Brenda Lucky, the RCMP Commissioner. It's her last day, Friday uh, the 17th. I'll be watching to see how she exits that position. That does it for us this week. However, thank you so much for watching. I hope you have a great day. I'll see you tomorrow on Power Play.